Welcome to the Ambedkar Initiative podcast series, in which students at Columbia University discuss their research on B.R. Ambedkar, a Columbia alum and one of the 20th century's foremost thinkers on caste and democracy. I'm Anupama Rao, director of the Ambedkar Initiative and professor of history at Columbia. In this episode, Leila Varke, a master's student studying international and world history, speaks with Rohini Shukla, a PhD candidate in religion. So uh, let's get straight into this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly interests and what brought you to the Ambedkar Initiative? Yeah, so um, I came to this research initially through my interest and in my current research on caste and communism in Kerala, uh, a place where we see a radical response by organized Marxism to the questions of untouchability and caste. Um, I've also been thinking a lot about the institution of the matrilineal household in Kerala and then the destruction of that matrilineal household as an important prehistory for how communism would unfold in Kerala. Um, so yeah, research on Kerala is so rich to me because it is such a particular region for not only caste and communism, but also for the particular histories of domesticity, gender, and sexuality in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, Ambedkar deals with all of these issues, caste and endogamy, as well as Brahminical patriarchy. And he also has a contentious and really fascinating relationship with Marx's ideas. Mm-hmm. So these kind of glimmers of Ambedkar that I see in my work on Kerala drew me to researching more about his legacy and the life that his ideas come to take on. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm really interested in um, your exploration of how Gandhi is received in the United States, which we've spoken about a little bit before. So can you tell us more about how you came to be interested in Gandhi in this context and how we might trace what happens to Gandhian ideas in um, black American intellectual circles? Yes, definitely. And I think that the reception of Gandhi is particularly interesting in light of the fact that this kind of dyad between Ambedkar and Gandhi is in some ways the classic organizing agonism in Indian historiography. Um, and, and there we see Gandhi most clearly as this kind of social conservative figure, uh, as a kind of reactionary figure. Um, and we can see that he... You know, we know that he views caste reform as the responsibility of the upper castes. He names them the Harijan, just as Ambedkar is moving towards thinking about them as broken men or as Dalits. Um, and of course, what's important now too is that the early Gandhi in South Africa is really read as a figure who in fact precluded any possibility for race caste unity, particularly when we think about the significance of Indian indentured labor in South Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this context, he was still an imperial subject who never really supported race caste unity Mm -hmm. and preferred the idea of trusteeship to any kind of broad based mass class action. So given all of this history, it's actually quite surprising and for me really important that something different happens when Gandhian principles are taken up by black intellectual circles in the early and mid 20th century. And I think that the American Gandhi really takes on a new life particularly through the black church and the idea of a radical Christ or a liberatory Christ. Um, and in my research, I really wanted to trace this creative interpretation of Gandhi and nonviolence as a practical philosophy, 
um, mm-hmm. which becomes possible through the proximity of Gandhian ideas and Christian ideals as these join in enabling black liberation. So nonviolence here was really a tactic of the weak, and radical protest was a way to make a spectacle of racist violence and the long-standing dispossession of black people in the United States. So um, I'd like to know more about what you think, uh, what you have in mind about the American reception of Gandhi. Um, like you said, there seems to be, um, I think we've spoken about this before, there seems to be a prevailing idea that it was really king that took up Gandhi in the United States. So did you find that there is actually a prehistory to this moment? Uh, are there other figures involved in the American reception of Gandhi? Yeah, that's a really um, good question and an important point you bring up about the transmission of Gandhi in the United States through Martin Luther King, um, but also before. I always think about the story of um, King's trip to South India in 1959, mm-hmm. where he actually went yeah. to visit a children's school in Kerala in Thiruvanandapuram. And for the first time, he was introduced to someone who was an untouchable in America. Um, and I think we, he's written about feeling really uh, hurt, uh, confused by this by this name. Um, mm-hmm. And all of this is really kind of the late or the radical King and We can see his radicalization in the last decade of his life with the history of the Poor People's Campaign as well as um, his time as a staunch anti-war activist against U.S. militarism in Vietnam as well as mm-hmm. um, the way he dealt with questions of black poverty and um, access to education, housing, and health care. Um, but King himself was actually introduced to Gandhi much earlier by an important group of, of African-American intellectuals. And I think important black Christian and pacifist activists really laid the groundwork for this from organizations okay. like the Congress of Racial Equality, as well as the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a long history of of people like Howard Thurman um, and Benjamin Mays, who were involved with Morehouse and Howard, respectively, and met Gandhi and were also important influences on King, as well as Edward Carroll, who becomes the first black bishop of the United Methodist Church, and Channing Tobias, who would become the chairperson of the NAACP in the late 50s. All of these people met with Gandhi and were important people um, in King's career. Um, so yeah, circling back to the Fellowship of Reconciliation and, and these Christian Quaker pacifist groups, um, mm-hmm. People like James Farmer, A.J. Musty, and Bayard Rustin were all using nonviolent methods of direct action in their organizing in the 1940s already. Um, mm-hmm. And the important thing is that all of these figures were trying to influence King's reading of Gandhi. Yeah. Um, but actually what I, I found really interesting in this research, especially since we're conducting it at Columbia, is that the most important influence on King's reading of Gandhi, but also on Gandhi in Black intellectual circles more broadly, was a book written by Krishnalal Sridharani, a Columbia alum, um, in 1939 called War Without Violence. Uh, and this book was, it actually started as his... Um, Uh, doctoral dissertation in sociology at Columbia, and it was a study of Gandhi's methods as, as well as its accomplishments. Um, Sridharani also translated many of Gandhi's writings into English, and I really see him as a catalyst for this newly politicized reading of Gandhi in the United States that I'm talking about here. Okay, wow, that's a really rich uh, history, a lot of important figures and a lot of connections. 
Um, since we are interested in Ambedkar's world in New York, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Sridharani as an alum? Yes, definitely. And um, I think what you say about Ambedkar's world in New York is important because it highlights that I, I think there's really a spatial logic to this history and one that is very situated in New York and in Harlem in particular. So um, Sridharani arrived in New York to study at Columbia in 1934, where he got a master's degree in journalism as well as a PhD in sociology. Um, so before Columbia, Sridharani had participated in Gandhi's Salt March in 1930, and he was also a student at Tagore's Visva Bharati University in West Bengal. Um, he spent over a decade in the U.S. as a student, as an activist, as well as a popular interpreter of Gandhianism. Um, so yeah, as I said, his di- dissertation at Columbia actually grew into a quite widely read book called War Without Violence, where he kind of explicates the tenets of nonviolence he learned at Gandhi's feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the intervention or what Sridharani really does here is to take the mysticism out of Gandhianism and to instead provide a Gandhi of pragmatic action or real politique. And so here, Gandhi is really a philosopher of action. Um in 1941, it's interesting, Sridharani wrote that, um, he wrote that, quote, American pacifism is essentially religious and mystical, unquote. And um, what Sridharani hoped to provide instead was a reading of Gandhian ideas that would form what he called the blueprint for a bloodless revolution. Um, and, and later, war without violence would eventually become what Rustin calls the semi-official Bible of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which instituted a series of workshops on nonviolent techniques in Harlem, as well as a series of uh, Gandhi memorial lectures at which Rustin spoke. Very, very fascinating, uh, Leila. Thank you for all of this uh, information. And... I'm particularly interested in your mention of Harlem. Uh, You already flagged it as an important space. So can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of Harlem for your research? Yes, definitely. Um, And this is really exciting for me because I think one of the most important reverberations of this form of Sridharani's Gandhianism in the United States is actually the Harlem Ashram, which was an experiment in interracial pacifist living at 125th Street and 5th Avenue. Um, It existed from 1940 to 1948, and it was founded by two white Methodist missionaries who had gone to India and come back. Um, so Sridharani was involved in this experiment and Bayard Rustin also lived nearby and is said to have visited the ashram often. What I find really fascinating about this ashram is that it was really an experiment in enacting ahimsa and satyagraha in Harlem, but also deeply influenced by Christian teachings and philosophy. Um, the ashram had initiatives like helping recent black migrants find housing and work, as well as investigating police violence against striking workers. Um, and the ashram also planned for a credit union run by and for the black and Puerto Rican communities in Harlem. Um, this ashram really exemplified a kind of international and interreligious worldview as it drawed from Christianity as well as Hinduism. Um, And this worldview would kind of form the basis of what Bayard Rustin would later call the classical phase of the civil rights movement. I also think that the ashram highlights some really generative connections between Black and South Asian intellectual circles and political movements in the 1940s. 
Um, I, there's something here too for me about um, Sri Dharani's time at the ashram at Vishva Bharati and the through line of the, these kind of experiments in vocational living that somehow make their way to Harlem that I find really interesting. Um, absolutely. It's extremely interesting to see the ways in which these histories come alive in Harlem. I'm interested uh, a little bit more in hearing uh, about the specific ways in which black intellectuals around Harlem come to take up Sridharani's reading of Gandhi. How did it come about that they found his thesis so influential? Or in other words, what was it that primed their, recep- their reception to Gandhi, Gandhian action? That's a really important question. Thank you, Rohini. Um, the historian uh, Vijay Prashad has a really nice argument about this, about the importance of disentangling the complex ways in which Gandhi's ideas traveled to the United States, not just through King, but through an intervention by a number of ordinary activists who felt that nonviolence as a method could play a really crucial role in the struggle for freedom in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 1942, most leading activists in the Fellowship of Reconciliation were disciples of Gandhi. As I mentioned, A.J. Musty, Rustin, mm-hmm. George Hauser, Glenn Smiley, and the Reverend J. Holmes Smith. All of these activists, religious leaders, and intellectuals saw Gandhi as a philosopher of action and not as a kind of religious, essentially religious and mystical figure, the way that uh, broader the broader American pacifist movement did, I think. Um, and in the United States, black intellectuals and organizers were particularly able to recognize the material political consequences of Gandhi's thinking to recognize his genius for the politics of transgression and gesture, but also its commitment to, and as well as its necessary reliance on, the democratic creation of a mass movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the beginning of the 1940s, the, all these civil rights activists, but in particular A.J. Musty, A. Philip Randolph, and John Haynes Holmes, all met to discuss Sridharani's book and its possible application to the racial conditions in the United States. Um, right. Glenn Smiley wrote, uh, he described the book as a tiny pebble thrown into Mm -hmm. a pond, but that its resulting ripples and waves would have an extraordinary influence upon the future of civil rights activism in America. Mm -hmm. Um, So through black intellectual circles, we really see an opening for a radical Gandhi becomes possible. Uh, A radical Gandhi meets a radical Christ. And here poverty philosophy, I think, really meets organized mass action. Um, King himself actually put it very succinctly when he said much later in 1960 that, quote, Christ furnished the spirit while Gandhi furnished the method. Um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see the impact of a project that began as a dissertation at Columbia. And in thinking about these figures, I'm thinking that Rustin is quite well known in his own right. I have always heard, of, heard that Rustin was radical. Are there any sort of more minor figures that came up in your research this summer? And what other connections did you find? You've already told us some, but I'd like to know more. Yeah, thank you for this question, Rohini. I think it's a really important one. I I mentioned before that most of the figures I'm thinking about in this research are men, but um, Mm -hmm. there are some important women who approach this world and this moment at a sort of angle to hetero or patriarchal frames. Um, mm-hmm. So one of them is Polly Murray, and I'll just mention her. Uh, she's, okay. a, she's a queer figure. She dresses like a man, and she really sort of tempts um, interstate bus integration through practices of satyagraha, 
Um, and so here, Murray is a figure who embodies a queer kind of sexuality, but and is at the same time an anti-racist activist. Mm-hmm. Um, another woman that I've been thinking a lot about this summer is Murs Tate. Um, she was one of the most accomplished scholars of international relations at Howard and one of the strikingly few women in her field. Um, and she lived an amazing life. She was the first black woman ever to attend Oxford. Um, and she was the first black woman to earn a PhD in government from Harvard. And, and Tate, so she's a sociologist. She's committed to this race caste question. And for her, India really opens up a space of emancipation and political possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an amazing resource I use to, to learn about her life. It's a series of tapes at Harvard through the Black Women's Oral History Project, um, taped interviews with women, including Murs Tate, that really formed an oral historical archive for this work that I'm doing in the time of the pandemic. So it's been mm-hmm. immensely useful. Um, and so in the period of the 1940s, you know, when everything else was going on that I've talked about, Tate was also closely reading Sridharani's writings and his translations of Gandhi. Um, a decade later, Tate would in fact take a Fulbright year from 1950 to 1951 in India, and she taught geopolitics at Tagore's uh, Vishva Bharati College, the same place from where Sridharani had graduated. Um, and I thought it was really interesting when she returned to the United States, she pushed really hard for the creation of an Asian studies department at Howard. Um, yeah, and her time in India also really changed the direction of her work and her research. It turned her to thinking more globally about race and questioning it as a universally valid analytical category. Um, the Robert Vitalis makes a really nice argument about this, and we can imagine the shift brought about in her thinking through her exposure to this kind of prime anti-colonial site or anti-colonial nation in, in India, um, as well as the relatively early decolonization of India compared to many other parts of the world. Um, I was really um, struck by, years later, Tate would recall her time at Vishva Bharati quite similarly to the way that Alan Locke described or remembered Paris. She said, quote, uh, that period that I spent in India, I felt more like a human being valued for my worth than any other time in my life, unquote. Um, and I, Robert Vitalis also points out um, Tate was perhaps reflecting not only on her experiences as a black person in the United States, but also on her experiences of marginalization as a woman at Howard. So I think these kind of institutional histories that we've been doing this summer are also really fascinating. Right, right. Absolutely. So, um, so from what I hear you say, it sounds like Tate has her own kind of internationalism. How does uh, Merze Tate's life help us think differently about the other figures important to our research? So that's Ambedkar, Du Bois, and so on. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that Tate's life really is very important and so interesting for thinking about some of these other figures as well, especially as, as I said, as we think about making connections between these different elite institutions and black right. institutions across the U.S. Mm-hmm. So just like how we have um, we have Ambedkar and Du Bois kind of framing the institutions of Columbia and Harvard for us, um, Sridharani and Tate are also reconnect us with a kind of subaltern or more minor history of these institutions, Columbia and Harvard, as well as thinking through the kind of belatedness of Oxford as well in her life. Um, I think it's really fascinating and important to think about figures like Tate and how they moved 
through these elite spaces of places like Harvard and Oxford. Um, mm-hmm. And then the way that they take knowledge back to Howard, back to the Black institution, much like Du Bois did with Harvard and then coming back to Atlanta University. Um, yeah. And I think that what you say about Tate's own internationalism is so striking and so true. Um, she really writes about her life as um, and speaks about her life as an, as an expedi- expedition, like as an adventurer. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. She speaks about um, the research she undertook across Fiji, Samoa, Jerusalem, Burma, Damascus, Beirut, like Istanbul, Vienna, Paris, so much more. So this is truly an extraordinary life. And it really is the kind of itinerary that we also see with Du Bois and Ambedkar. Yes. Um, so, you know, these are the truly extraordinary intellectuals of their time the most decorated kinds of thinkers. And, and Tate is someone who does something really comparable to these men. So it's been fascinating to uncover her history as well. And it has been fascinating to listen to you speak. I really wish we uh, could go on uh, having this conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Leila. Thank you so much. It was really fun. It was fun to talk about this research.